You're listening to Denver Orbit. Episode 34. 9066. Well, hi there, strangers. You are most likely aware that you are listening to Denver Orbit because you probably clicked this on purpose. And if somehow you got here on complete accident, well, welcome to Denver Orbit. Denver Orbit is a magical, magical, sure, why not, podcast featuring voices, stories, and music from Colorado's creative community. Now let's talk. I know it's been a little more than a month since the last episode, and I apologize for that. Sometimes things kind of just get in the way. You know, and I keep teasing this, but there are really some great things in the works here. So I thank you for your patience and I promise you this will all pay off today, even. But before we get to that, I I do want to get a few things out of the way. Denver Orbit is really kind of a community project and we're always looking for stuff for the show. Maybe you're a writer and you've got a great short story, kind of fiction or non, or maybe you've got a really good essay and you've been itching to share it, or it could be you're a comic and you've got an idea for something. I don't know, maybe you're some kind of scientist or researcher and you want to talk about your work. Or maybe you just had something crazy or weird or interesting happen to you and you want to share that story. Point being, reach out to us and let us know, denverorbit at gmail.com or Facebook slash Denver Orbit or Instagram or yes, even Twitter. Links to these things will be in the show notes. And if you're enjoying this little program, here's a way you can help support us. Get on a ladder, climb up to your roof, and write, Listen to Denver Orbit in huge letters on the top of your house. Just make sure you write big enough to be seen from an airplane. Or, you know, just tell a friend or two. That may actually be more feasible, but as the kids say, you do you. Now, the reason I'm getting that all out of the way up front instead of splitting it up throughout the show like I usually do is I just kind of want to get started right away. I'm really lucky to have a couple of very talented radio producers making work for this show, and I'm proud to feature a story from each one of them today. Each of these stories examines the subject of the Japanese internment camps. One examination is through art and the other archaeology. So let's start with the art. Serifukami makes these beautiful pieces using archival photographs, Japanese textiles, and government documents on plexiglass. The end result is multi-layered, both in the art itself and in the meaning behind it as well. Producer Shannon Geis met with Sarah a little while back and talked to her about her art and her process. For Denver artist Sarah Fukami, understanding her family's past has led her to create artwork that she hopes will encourage others to consider the experiences of immigrants in the United States. Her art focuses on portraits of Japanese Americans who were sent to internment camps by the U.S. government during World War II, just as members of her family were. All of my Japanese family was interned. Um, My great-grandfather, my grandfather, and his three sisters. Sarah became interested in learning more when she was in college, after she started rummaging through family documents in her basement and learning about her own family history. 
She began doing more research about the internment camps and discovered a series of photographs that Ansel Adams took at the Manzanar camp in California. And he actually just donated this body of work to the Library of Congress um, without restrictions. Um, it's really readily available. I think their their intention is definitely to, to have it be able to easily um, be accessible to the public. What these served, the, like the purpose that these served for him, I think, was to really make the Japanese Americans seem more approachable, um, less dangerous, less intimidating. So you'll see like young schoolgirls um, uh, and boys and you know every every sort of different echelon of, of this camp is, is represented in the photographs. As she spent time with this collection of photos, she started thinking about how she could reinterpret them. I wanted to get to know that person. And so I just kind of picked out a handful of photographs that I that just spoke to me, I guess. And um, I started researching. Um, my main resource is a national database of um, interned Japanese Americans. So that's it's it's it, its purpose was for government use. The information it contains, so when I say it was, it, it's what was useful for the government, it was really basic information that, I don't know, may or may not have been suspicious to them or like a reason to incarcerate them. So it was where they were born, where their parents were born, uh, what language do they speak, uh, were they educated in Japan, uh, occupation, and all other just really basic information like that and you just see this this person this individual their story boiled down to you know what the government uh you know expected of them sarah began reprinting some of the portraits and applying brightly colored patterns derived from japanese textiles on top of them i have sort of this little archive of traditional like woodcut textile uh, patterns. So they would literally carve these blocks and print the fabric with this. Um, and you know, I, I think it's just a nice way to sort of harken back to the, the history um, and just sort of acknowledge the Japanese-ness, if you will, the, the Japanese-ness that almost gets whitewashed by um, Adams. Then she laser cut information from the government database about the person featured in the portrait into the image. What I really like about laser cutting specifically is that it's, it affects the paper physically and it, it burns away, it removes. And that to me represented the feeling that I had when I first saw the database. You know, it's, it's this discomfort she hopes by adding these effects to the portraits, others will see the people featured in a new light. What I sort of bring to it is my own history and just kind of removing that lens of, of the white male gaze. You know, he had great intentions, but to me, the photographs feel the need for reinterpretation. While internment during World War II was primarily limited to those of Japanese descent, 
Sarah believes that there is something universal in the experience of immigrants that her art can highlight. I'm really interested in the immigrant experience because it's a human experience. And to say that a person is illegal is, to me, completely ridiculous. And that's why I would like to use my artwork as sort of the middle ground, where it's not overtly political, but I, I like to think it, it's more personal. She hopes that her work can inform people about one of America's darker moments, as well as encourage conversation about what we can learn from that past. Really just trying to remind people that these are other human beings. And I think art is a really great way to connect people. I mean, it, it's a huge part of why art is incredibly important to society. You can see examples of Sarah's work and learn more about her art at sarahfukami.com. Sarah Fukami received a BFA from DU and is a Redline Gallery resident alumnus. Her work revolves around the formation of identity and perception of history, particularly in relation to the immigrant experience. As Shannon mentioned, you can find her at sarahfukami.com, and her work is currently up at Art Jam Denver as part of the show Settlers and will be on view until the end of March. Shannon Geis is a freelance audio producer and oral historian who loves telling stories, exploring historic places, and traveling. And you can hear more of her work at shannongeis.net. And we'll have links to all of this in the show notes. Finally, producer Ray Solomon went to DU to talk to Professor Bonnie Clark about her work out at the Japanese internment camp out in southeast Colorado. Welcome to the Archaeology Lab. Bonnie Clark is an associate professor in the Anthropology Department at University of Denver. One evening in December, she walked me through some of her favorite objects from the field. This is one of those things that it might take an archaeologist to love, but I love it. Can uh, I take a guess? Yeah, take a guess. This is a big lump of hard and black and looks kind of like a mushroom almost. <laughs> almost Some kind like of overgrown fungus. Yeah. So do you see that maybe these are individual strings or were at one point? A mop? <laughs> yes. It is a string mop that was then infiltrated with tar and was probably used to repair a barrack. It kind of smells tarry. It might indeed take an archaeologist to love this old blackened mop head. Honestly, it's hard for me to understand why she's so excited about it. And that's not the only thing she's excited about. What's this over here, this sort of rusty can? This is one of our many modified tin cans. Flowers brilliantine bottle with a little plastic lid on it. Actually, the axle for like a wagon that then has wire wrapped all around it. So a soup bowl, rice bowls. It's a bait bucket. 
a bait bucket, an aluminum condom wrapper. These are swizzle sticks from the Santa Fe Tavern in Grenada, Colorado that we got at the Amachi dump. Yeah, it kind of seems like Dr. Clark is geeking out over a pile of junk. As an archaeologist, her life's work is premised on the idea. Trash does not lie. Trash does not lie. Sure. But when I think of archaeological finds, I expect them to be much older and just not, well, not like the trash you might find in your neighbor's garbage can, which is basically what I see here on the table. But Dr. Clark loves this trash. She depends on it for her work researching recent history. She is the director of the DU Amachi Project. Amachi, also known as the Grenada Wartime Relocation Center. Amachi was Colorado's Japanese internment camp built on a dusty square mile of prairie by the eastern edge of the state, near the Kansas border. A couple months after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, 1941, President Franklin Roosevelt issued Executive Order 9066. When the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, our west coast became a potential combat zone. Living in that zone were more than 100,000 persons of Japanese ancestry, two-thirds of them American citizens, one-third aliens. We knew that some among them were potentially dangerous. Military authorities therefore determined that all of them, citizens and aliens alike, would have to move. Amachi was one of 10 camps created throughout the Western United States to imprison those Japanese-American families. All these objects in Dr. Clark's laboratory were unearthed at Amachi. We go block by block by block. We think we've got about three more years of survey and we'll be able to finish having surveyed every single one of the blocks that is in this area of the camp that was devoted to the internees. Because the camp is recent history, living history, there's a lot of back and forth between archeological researchers and survivors. A gentleman talked to us about the fact that his block had a lot of sort of worldly L.A. women who were unmarried and who'd been, you know, like waitresses. And then we're excavating in a garden in his block, and I come across this bright, blood-red fingernail polish. And suddenly I thought of the, the worldly women of 9L out in the, in the garden painting their fingernails with a scandalous color. The camps opened in August of 1942. Almost everyone came from California. What would happen is one day you'd go downtown and there'd be a poster up and it would let you know that your area was about to be evacuated. You were told where to report and that you were only to bring what you could carry. You go and your family's given a number. You have to wear it. So you wear a tag with a number. To this day, people who were in camp can tell you what their number was. These were concentration camps. People were not allowed to have a trial, and they were rounded up based on their, their national identity. Essentially, if you had any Japanese, in, like if you, you could be a quarter or an eighth Japanese and you were supposed to go to camp. Folks wanted to show that they were in support of the U.S. There were a few people who 
who refused to obey the order, and they were arrested, and some of them, their cases went all the way to the Supreme Court. But most people went willingly. You know, they followed the orders. The families were first brought to temporary assembly centers, then put onto trains bound for hastily constructed permanent camps, including Amachi. They come into town on the train into the, the Grenada train station, and then they all are put onto buses or army transport trucks, and then they line up, and then they are assigned into these barracks. All of the buildings are based on these army plans. They're not designed for whole families. They're divided up 20 by 24 feet, and that's going to be everything. That's your living room. That's your bedroom. That's where you're going to get dressed. And you've got a single potbelly stove and a single bare light bulb. Your windows do open, but every time you do, the wind is going to blow that sand right into it. Remember that tar-drenched mop? Those are the physical remains of reinforcing thin-walled barracks with tar to keep out the wind-whipped sands of the plains. It was just kind of a wind-blown, nasty nightmare. There's a woman who was at Amachi who lives here in Denver, and she said, every time the wind blows, she thinks of camp. You've got showers, no baths. There are toilets with no separation. And then you've got a laundry room that you share. And then you've got a mess hall where everybody eats. Although... That's one of the things that we see archaeologically is that people immediately start cooking in their barracks on those little potbelly stoves. And that is one of the camp rules that is most flagrantly and often broken. That aluminum condom wrapper? We had been told to, to keep our eye out for birth control, that it was something that was actually provided by the army. I did an interview with a woman who was married in camp and she talked about the fact that she did not want to bring children into that situation. And so even though they were young newlyweds, she said, I was not going to bring a kid into camp. You have to go by military police every time you come and go through the, through the front gate. Mail was being censored. The camp newspaper had oversight by the War Relocation Authority, so they did not have a free press. People also found ways to make life tolerable in camp. They planted flowering fruit trees, built gardens, ritual baths, and even a sumo pit. Amachi was also very porous. Internees could obtain passes to leave, and they did. They made all kinds of connections with the nearby town of Grenada. They brought their swizzle sticks back to camp with them after a night out drinking in town. And it's actually relatively easy to get a pass. They're not supposed to be bringing in alcohol, although it's really clear that a lot of it was showing up in camp. They become tied through businesses and through shared work and through the fact that these soldiers are coming back and forth and going off to war and kids are running around and collecting arrowheads. And then... 1945, you get the end of the war. They announce in the summertime of 45, that they're going to close the camp in October. And people start leaving. This thing that, that breaks my heart is to think about the people who actually had to get kicked out of camp because they had so few resources. Most people lost everything. You know, they're, they're given a train ticket and $25. Where are you going to go when it's done? They started over. Most of them came 
to the United States with nothing. So it was like, well, we did it once. We're just going to do it again. People are scared to go back to the West Coast. They're hearing stories about night Riders, people being shot at, and Japs go home signs, feeling like they had been sold out by their neighbors. You, you vilify an entire population. You say they're dangerous enough to justify locking them up, and then you let them back out and tell everybody, oh, no, they're just like you. They're okay. And people don't necessarily buy that. And when you read the historic documentation around the internment, you realize that there are people that know it's a bad idea, but the wheels have started turning and they don't know how to get out of it. There was an official apology and survivors were given reparations. They were given $20,000 each, which is kind of a laughable amount of money given the economic losses. For many people, the apology was, was worth more. There was a congressional committee that basically looked at all the documents that had been classified. Their conclusion was that it was a mistake based on racism, wartime hysteria, and the failure of political leadership. They dismantle all the buildings, and some of them are sold um, for parts. Some of them are sold in whole. Certainly one of the ways to try to forget something happened is to leave no physical trace of it. But there are physical traces left, and that's where you come in. The more we're out there, the more we're telling the story, we're having these conversations about who belongs in America, about what happens when hysteria takes over, about the dangers of racism. These are important things for us to grapple with. The legacy of this story is it is ever-present because it's a reminder of the fragility of our civil rights in the face of forces who are more than willing to demonize their fellow human. To talk about what the cost was, to both show the difficulty of it, but then to show the dignity of the people who survived, it's a mission that all of us who are involved with this site share, which is to continue to, to tell that story and to tell it loud. Back in the lab, she shows me an Amachi High School yearbook. And then, you know, you have all the pictures of all these kids, and many of them signed, as they often are in a high school annual. How did they do their hair like that? I can't oh, imagine spending the time. I can show you. We have hair curlers. No kidding. Yeah. The objects Dr. Clark collects are so mundane, so easy to just dismiss as common garbage. But that might just be the point. I saw this little cylinder and the... It's a flattened cylinder. It's like a blue, bluish color. That's because it's made out of um, zinc. If you're going to use it for your wet hair when you roll it up... They underscore that the people inside the camps were not all that different from the people outside the camps. Did you know what that was right away when you saw it? Oh, yes, I did. Um, and that's because I've spent a lot of time looking at the 1944 Sears Roebuck catalog. We have barrettes. We have lots of hairpins. Yeah, those 1940s hairdos, they took a lot of work. 
the enemy within or maybe just the people within. People doing their hair, painting their nails, using birth control. People enjoying the breeze blowing through the blossoming fruit trees. People taking pleasure in whatever little freedoms they could arrange for themselves in captivity. Bonnie Clark is an associate professor in the University of Denver's Anthropology Department. A professional archaeologist since 1990, Dr. Clark's work has focused on using the tangible past, artifacts, architecture, and settlement patterns to tell a more inclusive history of Western North America. Dr. Clark's research interests include the relationships between material culture, ethnicity and gender, cultural landscapes, community-engaged research, and heritage management. She teaches a range of classes for the anthropology department, including historical archaeology, cultural narratives, and anthropologies of place. Dr. Clark serves as the curator for archaeology in the University of Denver Museum of Anthropology. Ray Solomon is an independent radio producer, and you can hear more of her work on KGNU and the podcast Changing Denver. Each month, she leads a work-in-progress workshop at House of Pod, and all of the links to that and to Bonnie Clark's work in the show notes. And Ray swears to me she will have her website up soon at radiosolomon.com, so keep your eyes out for that. Amachi is in the running for federal funds to make it a national monument this year. If Congress approves it, it'll happen, so we'll keep our eyes out on that as well. And that's it for today. Thanks to Bonnie Clark, Sarah Fukami, and of course, Ray and Shannon. The music of Lee Rosevere and Blue Dot Sessions was used to score our pieces And we'll be back in a couple of weeks with even more stuff, stuff you're bound to enjoy.